Hello, I'm Nicole Abadie and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabadie.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm delighted to welcome writer and historian Babette Smith to Books, Books, Books to discuss her fascinating new book, Defiant Voices, How Australia's Female Convicts Challenged Authority, published recently by the National Library of Australia. Babette is an independent historian who holds an adjunct appointment to the University of New England. In 1988, she published the groundbreaking A Cargo of Women, a fiction and a non-fiction version about convict women. It became a bestseller and was described by the Sydney Morning Herald as amongst the finest evocations of convict life to have been written. In 2008, she published Australia's Birthstain, which uncovered how Australia's shame about our convict history has distorted our understanding of our past. Her next book, The Luck of the Irish, won the 2015 New South Wales Premier's History Prize, Community and Regional. In 2015, Babette was awarded an Order of Australia Medal for her services to history. And finally, and not least importantly, I'm delighted to say that Babette is my sister-in-law. So I have been um, watching and following her progress over over more, well, I've been watching it now for more than 20 years and it's an absolute delight to have you here on Books, 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 Babette. So welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Nicole. It's lovely to be here. Now, Babette, you've been writing about convict women since 1988. That's over 30 years. What was it that first sparked your interest in that subject? Well, of course, it was an ancestor. We didn't know we had any convict ancestors. And my father had been doing some family history research in retirement uh, and, of course, had done, made all the mistakes one can make, going down the paternal line, you know, according to family myth, and had got nowhere. Uh, after he died in 1980, uh, his little manila folder landed first with my brother Robert, then with me, and uh, between us we discovered indeed there was a female convict among the two others as well. Um, and I got very interested in her and decided I would pursue her story. So that was the genesis. Um, but when I decided to re research all her shipmates as well, I transcended the family history genre and found I had something of broader significance. And that was when you wrote your first two books on convict history, both called Cargo of Women, one fictional and one non-fictional. I'm going to stick today to the uh, non-fiction, the history. Tell us about Cargo of Women. What was it about? Well, it was about the story of a hundred women who sailed on the ship Princess Royal in 1828, one of whom was Susanna Watson, the ancestor I mentioned. Uh, most of them have been convicted of theft of one kind or another, picking pockets, robbery, highway robbery in one case, um, and with one or two uh, convicted of violent crimes. And when I compared that to uh, a broader statistical sample done in the uh, 1960s, I found that my sample of 100 women really did line up against the broader statistics. So it was nice to see I was looking at a personal version of statistics. I took it from there. Tell us a little bit just briefly, about the story of your ancestor, Susanna Watson. Why was she being transported? What had she done? She had been living in dire poverty, really, as many others were from the time the war against the French ended with the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. Thousands of soldiers were discharged into a homeland where prices were exploding, 
Uh, weather was appalling. Industrial change was just beginning to get underway and they found themselves in dire circumstances. Uh, Susanna was caught up in that and married an ex-soldier called Edward Watson and uh, he came from Nottingham. So they went to live there, but he had been a framework knitter and that was an occupation was under massive change due to replacement by machinery. So as they had child after child, they couldn't feed them. So Susanna began to steal uh, and her first uh, theft, for which she spent three months in jail, uh, it seems to have been perhaps an opportunistic, impulsive one. She stole a grapefruit from a pub. Um, the second one, however, was obviously more deliberate because she stole some silverware, again from a pub, uh, and she received a year in the Nottingham jail for that, uh, each time accompanied by the latest baby who she was breastfeeding. But the third time, uh, she was on her own in the slums of Not Nottingham with uh, four children and a just newborn infant, and Edward himself was in jail for poaching. So she had no support at all. He'd turned to poaching also because of the grinding poverty. Um, she went around in the marketplace stealing groceries from several stores and, of course, she was caught and put into jail again with the latest infant named Thomas who she was breastfeeding. And this time she'd stolen enough of sufficient value, which was one of the yardsticks of the uh, court um, to be found guilty and ordered to transportation. For, was it for 14 years? Yes. Um, before she was sentenced, uh, the judge said to her, or she said to the judge by way of explanation, I couldn't bear to see my children starve. And she had and four children by that stage, didn't she, including yes. a baby? Yes. And he replied, your children will be better off without you. Babette, you write in the book, that's obviously a, a really great personal story that gives us a very a real idea of what life was like in 18th century for poor women. What were your options? If you were a single woman, if you were unmarried, if you were a widow, if your husband was in jail, you had children to feed, what were the options for poor women? How, how would they support themselves and their families? Really, there were no options but crime, really. Uh, you might pick up a bit of uh, short-term work if you were lucky, maybe some needlework. Susanna was doing what they call piecework because she could uh, she could make lace uh, and Nottingham was a big centre for lace making. Um, but it wasn't enough to feed a family. Uh, many turned to prostitution, either on a quite uh, uh, premeditated and commercial basis often with a pimp running the show for them, uh, but otherwise just casual pickups in pubs or sex in a back alley for which they were paid. Um, and that was about the range of it. Let's talk now about the, the female convicts transported to Australia. You say that of 163,000 convicts transported between 1788 and 1868, about 25,000 of them were women. What were the main crimes that women were transported for and how old were they generally? Well, starting first with the age, as you know, the book contains a number of pictures of convict women in older age looking well-dressed, many of them. Um, but when they were transported, they were just girls, mainly teenagers between 15 and, say, 22, so very, very young. Uh, at the extremes... There were some girls aged 12 and even one at least we know of who was only nine when she was transported. And at the other end on the uh, First Fleet, for example, uh, Dorothy Handland was said to be 82. So the age range was enormous, but the great mass were 15 to 22, roughly. So Susanna was a little older than the, than the average She'd had time to have all those children and she was near 30 when she was transported. 
So what were the crimes, by and large, that women were transported for? Well, as I mentioned, 90% uh, or more, actually, 98% were theft. Um, A lot of it was shop robbery, and that was usually premeditated. Uh, Two or three women would go into a shop together. Two of them would divert the shopkeeper, while the third one stole the goods. That was very common. Uh, on the other hand, there were others who tried other tricks. Uh, Margaret Marnie, an Irish woman who was on the Princess Royal, went into a shop uh, and uh, claimed, well, she claimed to buy some bacon and walked out the door with it as the shopkeeper yelled after her and she then turned around and said, I was just about to pay for it. But she got transported for seven years. Um, sometimes, although this was more often a young male, uh, sometimes they would snatch a, a shawl off, off someone's uh, neck as they were walking down the street. Or uh, in the case of the women, uh, perhaps after sex in the alley, they'd be feeling around in the pockets, maybe find a pocket watch, which they'd grab and run off with. Uh, so it was that kind of theft. They weren't generally violent crimes, were they? I think you said that only maybe only 1% or a very, very small percentage of the women were being transported for violent crimes. Yes, that's correct. And um, I never found anything, oh, yes, one I did. I was about to say I never found anyone who, who committed premeditated violent crime except for one woman who shot her lover who was an officer in the Coldstream Guards, and she insisted she... She'd done it on purpose and she'd been planning it for a long time. But uh, more typical was, for instance, Margaret Hartigan, who was a shipmate of Susanna Watson's, uh, who got into a row with another a young mother who was sharing the room they all slept and lived in, picked up a kettle of boiling water and threw it across the room and the water fell on the other woman's toddler. Mm. And who was scalded so badly, she died. Mm. And when the constable came to uh, arrest Margaret the next morning, she said, you know, I knew I'd done wrong. I was coming to give myself up. So that was, she was transported for life for that. But one of the many things that makes your book so interesting is that you do pick the stories of individual women, you name them, and you tell the stories in the um in the body of the work, but then there are various separate pages and sections devoted to particular individual women and their stories, which you tell in the sort of detail that you're doing now. Could you tell us a little bit about your research? What material was there available or did you find that enabled you to tell the stories of individual women in such a a personal and intimate way? Well, it's easier in Tasmania. And as you know, the book covers both penal colleagues, New South Wales, and Van Diemen's Land, as it was called. In Van Diemen's Land, the records survived. So it's much easier to get a whole picture of a woman's experience in the penal colony because it's recorded in what are called the conduct records. What are they? Well, they they begin with a, a ship's arrival where a master clerk would go on board and take a statement from each woman including their own description of the crime Mm. and something, for example, that a court back in England might have called sheep stealing, you'll find the the, uh, person who stole the sheep describing it as poaching. So, you know, you get a a different take sometimes on the exact uh, view of the crime. They also take details of age and height and colour of hair and eyes, any tattoos. It's amazing the kind of physical detail that was recorded. And then they begin recording who that person was assigned to for work, what happened, any offences they committed while they were a, a, a prisoner, when they got a ticket of leave, when they got a certificate of freedom. So in Tasmania, you can get a whole framework around uh, almost every convict's uh, criminal, ex- uh, sorry, experience as a prisoner in Tasmania. In New South Wales, we're not so lucky. Many of those same records, the conduct records in particular, were destroyed deliberately. 
around about the time we were approaching the first centenary in 1888, where shame about the convicts actually led to quite a lot of destruction about records and changing place names and so on. Um, so piecing together the details of an individual's life is a much more complex uh, exercise. For most of us in both New South Wales in, and uh, Tasmania, but particularly important in uh, New South Wales, we start with the, what's known as the ship's indent. So when the Princess Royal arrived, all 100 women would have been recorded. So if you know or can discover what ship your convict ancestor arrived on, then you've got some basic information. In New South Wales, the indents do give things like height, hair colour, eye colour, tattoos. So that's a good start. It also gives the date of trial. So you then start working backwards and forwards. You go backwards to the trial records in Britain and any newspaper reports. And at the same time, you're working forwards to see what other details you can find about what happened to them in the, in the penal colonies. I want to ask you now about what life was like on board the ships. I gather, and I hadn't realised this, I might say, that the women were transported in female convict ships. They tended not to be transported with the, the male convicts. Um, what was life like for a female convict on one of those ships? Really from the time of the First Fleet, women were transported on separate ships, but some were on the same ship as men in those early days. And much exaggeration has been built around those instances. Um, the fact they're on separate ships is really the experience of most of them. Um, I think we can very easily underestimate how important regular food and somewhere to sleep was to convict women. That's what they lacked back in Britain. There's even a quote from one of them who, who said, you know, I would get up in the morning and not know whether I would break my fast that day or where I might lay my head at night. A terrible insecurity. So they get onto the ships and suddenly they've got regular food and predictable shelter. Um, they were... Not shy and demure, they were street smart and opportunistic. And they soon recognised that hooking up with one of the sailors was a way to get extras. Tea and sugar were much prized and items they couldn't really afford at all back home. Yes, well, sailors could provide tea and sugar, something that they had no access to back in Britain. So that was very great privilege and worth uh, spending nights in the sailor's uh, uh, hammock or, if it's an officer, in the officer's cabin, which many did. However, the number of convict women who sailed on any given ship always far outweighed the number of the crew. So the idea, which was very uh, fashionable among the historians at one stage, that they were coerced by the crew, that they had no choice but to prostitute themselves. I can't see that that happened at all. Yeah, you reject that, don't you? That's, that is something that's traditionally has been said and your research doesn't support that. No, it doesn't. When the ships, so let's talk about the first fleet. So the 11 ships arrived. Um, most of the women were on two of them and you say there are 193 women convicts as opposed to 582 male convicts. So that gives us a bit of an idea of the proportion. You've seen letters home from a number of these women, and I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how those letters differ from the traditional view of what life was like in the early days of settlement. Well, the first letter, which was written in late 1788, uh, actually, I think, helped establish the traditional legend about Botany Bay. It's unsigned, so we don't know who wrote it. Um, 
The writer says she's sending it home privately via a friend, um, but you have to suspect maybe she wrote it to be read officially. Not sure about that. But anyway, she moans the whole way through the unsigned letter about the conditions, there's no uh, food, what there is she doesn't like. Uh, she describes some native plant they're eating that is similar to spinach, but no, she doesn't like that either. Um, she's not interested in the exploration or the amazing animals that they're encountering. She is uh, not interested, but not fearful of Indigenous people, except she fears on the soldiers' behalf that the Indigenous people may attack or kill them. Uh, anyway, this long extended moan by unknown sort of sets a scene. And then you find other letters. Uh, there is one from a woman called Mary Oliver who was transported in the late 1790s and who writes home to her daughter saying, this, my dear, is the garden of the world. Make sure you two uh, come out here as soon as you can manage it. Mm. And I have done, uh, although it's not fully detailed in the book, I have done further research. The daughter turns up a few years later. You said that some women even engineered their own transportation when they heard about what life was like. Yes, the working class, uh, the word of mouth amongst the working class was very good, although it was an appalling word of mouth amongst the gentry and aristocrats. Um, uh, so there are a number of instances where you either can see that the criminal back in England is committing the crime deliberately or when you follow through what they did after they got here, you can see the circumstantial evidence that they've done it deliberately. So, Babette, you, you make the point, I think, as you just have, that it may well be that poor British women in the 18th and 19th century had more opportunity here in the colonies than they would have had at home. And you ask rhetorically why we've heard these other stories and you say, I wonder if we've only been told half the story. What do you think? Do you think we have only been told half the story? Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt about that. Um, when the penal colonies came to an end, finally uh, Van Diemen's Land was the last uh, and transportation of women ended there in 1853. Um, a lot of new settlers came flooding in. They've started to come in the previous decade after New South Wales had ceased to be a penal colony. Uh, and their main aim in life was to, as it were, start a new story. They disparaged the convicts and the penal colonies, uh, created an image that they were depraved places full of depraved and brutalised people. And that story lay on the table, as it were, undisturbed for more than a century. Uh, it became sort of the received wisdom in the, from the 1850s and it was not until, well, certainly more than a century, it was not until 1980 that we started to rip the covers off. Uh, before then, we were all on operating on some kind of myth. Indeed, Indigenous history got buried alongside convict history. You write about that as well. You, you make the point that it's, it, it wasn't represented accurately either. What happened, who the authentic people were and what actually happened uh, was just unknown. So let's move to one of the main myths that you talk about. You've talked about it on the ship, this assumption that um, the relationships between the convict women and the, the sailors was prostitution, when in fact, according to your research, it probably wasn't. You write similarly about relationships in the colony between convict women and gentlemen, and many of those had also traditionally been viewed as prostitution or as um, the gentry, the masters, forcing themselves on their servants. Could you tell us a little bit about what your research has uncovered about the relationships between convict women and the gentlemen in many cases who they worked for or who they encountered? This particularly applies for the first 25 or 30 years. In other words, from 1788 up till about 1818. Um, what surprised me 
was not that one or two people had a mistress. I knew that uh, George, Colonel George Johnson, as he became, uh, it certainly did. Uh, I knew Darcy Wentworth did. There were two or three very famous figures in the history of the colony after the Europeans arrived that were known to have mistresses. What surprised me, looking at it more closely as I did for this book, was the sheer scale of uh, social mobility achieved by convict women in their relationships with gentlemen who one way or another came to the colony. What do you mean by social mobility? Is it what what the other thing that you discovered is that a number of these men actually married their convict mistresses? Is that is that what you mean? It's a mixture of quality of life and ultimately marriage, which where by the time Macquarie, Governor Macquarie turned up from 1810, part of his instruction was to make these scandalous couples marry. Mm. So some of them did and one or two reluctantly, but most quite happy to comply. But before that, um, you can see the uh, affection uh, and the domestic nature, nature of the relationship in some of the couples that have been unknown to us. Many of the ship surgeons stayed in the colony with their convict mistress. And then if they needed to go home for some reason, or maybe because their partner was urging that they all go home and see her family, they would sail back to England. One of them took his partner and their five daughters. Now, back they all went, not a lawful wife at that stage, just his convict partner. There was another story that you said of a, of a, a gentleman's wife who tolerated the coexistence of a mistress. That's true too. Gentlemen's lawful wives, when they had a lawful wife, uh, proved amazingly tolerant. Mm. I still don't understand that quite. Mm. Um, maybe they were happy for the mistress to take on the sexual duties and leave the wife in peace. Mm. She was usually pregnant continuously anyway. Um, it's the only explanation I can really find, but... Uh, Philip Gidley King's wife tolerated his mistress, Anne Annette, uh, and even uh, helped look after their two boys, both of whom ultimately joined the Navy. Um, and uh, the judge advocate, Richard Atkins, who was a bit of a reprobate and an aristocratic black sheep, uh, he had a mistress called Mary Beckwith, and his wife arrived in the colony catching them all by surprise but pr nevertheless proved amazingly tolerant. The mistress continued. Uh, the wife ultimately died. Richard, Advocate, uh, Richard Atkins married Mary Beckwith, took her back to London, and they're buried in the family vault. So who knows? It's just amazing some of the stories. <laughs> You mentioned Governor Macquarie and that you write about him in the book. His arrival in 1810 had an impact on everybody's lives, but in particular on the lives of the convict women. You talk about him bringing with him a rising evangelical morality. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? Yes. Well, the, late, the roots of the rising evangelical morality lay in the late 18th century. Um, Wilberforce, for instance, was an evangelical. He was responsible for choosing the first two chaplains in the colony, Richard Johnson, who came with the first fleet, and Samuel Marsden, who arrived a few, late, few years later. Um, Macquarie came out of that background as well. It was connected with uh, also determination to... Uh, end slavery throughout the British Empire and in Britain in particular. Uh, it was connected with prison reform, which ultimately turned into determination to reform the prisoners as well. Uh, so Macquarie arrived against that background. Uh, there had been a select committee of the British Parliament into Botany Bay uh, just before Macquarie came out and it was very concerned with the state of morals in the colony. Much had been made 
of these illicit relationships, so-called. Samuel Marsden, uh, well entrenched by then as the clergyman for the Parramatta area, uh, had created an infamous list of all those who were legally married and who were just partners and concubines. Um, that went before the select committee as well. Uh, so, again, that was background to Macquarie's orders to bring some morality into the place, make people get married, make them behave respectfully, make them go to church. Beth, tell us a little bit about the daily working lives of these convict women. I, they were mainly assigned as servants or as workers to the families of the uh, free people. Is that is that what happened? Uh, we'll come in a moment to talk about the female factory, but just yeah. if you could tell us a little bit about the day-to-day working life of someone who's been assigned to work for one of the settlers. You're right that they were mainly assigned to um, the settlers, but the nature of their work changed over time. With the first fleet, they're all working to do the washing or the sewing or whatever for the huge number of men who were busy cutting down trees and building huts and so on. Then there was a period where uh, they were assigned or should that be allocated to officers uh, or officials in the colony and so they were individual women who probably considered themselves very lucky, were washing and sewing and cooking for a single man or maybe two men. And there were very few free settler couples in the colony at that stage. Those who were there were assigned convict women to work for them as servants. But the real change occurred in 1823, immediately after Macquarie left where um, the decision in London was that the colony should be developed uh, by encouraging free settlers, men of capital, to emigrate and bringing with them sufficient capital to support free convict labour and to develop the free grants of land they were given. So from then on, early 1820s, and one of them was my ancestor, William Panton. He came out in 1823, had some capital, was granted 2,000 acres uh, at Netherton Pian Gorge and, uh, and free convict labour. Uh, from then on, settlers like he were the dominant employers of convict labour, and that lasted for 20 years in New South Wales and similarly in Van Diemen's land. Babette, you talk about the extent to which the women, the convicts generally, were heavily regulated and you make the point that um, a lot of normal, what we would regard or what would have been regarded in England as normal behaviour was actually criminalised and you talk about how in the face of this the women showed great bravado and defiance there was one amazing story of a woman called Anne Wilson who repeatedly was repeatedly brought before the magistrate and and the bravado and the courage that she showed in her responses. Could you tell us a little bit about that, about her story? Yes, I'd love to because she's one of my favourites. Amazing. Mine too. <laughs> individual rebellion. Um, she was uh, transported to Van Diemen's Land and in her experience there, really experienced every kind of punishment ever invented for women, except flogging. She missed flogging. It was prohibited in 1817. But But before that, women could be flogged, you said. And were, yes. Um, I even found an example of a woman being flogged who was determined not to shed a tear or to faint or give the floggers any satisfaction gritted her teeth silently all the way through. Amazing. Anyway, Anne Wilson endured everything else, hours in the stocks, time in cells on a diet of bread and water, hair cutting, solitary confinement, wearing an iron collar, banishment from town to various rural outposts, and she just kept getting into trouble. Um she was amazing because she, she was frightened. She never showed it. 
And the um, the uh, highlight, I shouldn't use that word because it was not a highlight for her, um, for me in the records, is when in 1827, after serving a sentence in the female factory in Hobart, she's leaving, she throws a stone through the superintendent's window, breaks the glass, of course. He immediately complains to the magistrate, so she's hauled up in front of the magistrate um, on a charge of being insolent and abusive. Uh, she's sentenced to 12 months in the factory at remote Georgetown in the far north of Van Diemen's Land. And as she's leaving the dock, she says to the magistrate, oh, I thank you, it's the very place I wish to go. Now, he was naturally was incensed at this response, which was described as insolent and improper. So he hauled it back in front of him and sentenced her to the stocks for four hours. Well, Anne said to that, that will not hurt me either. <laughs> now, very riled, the magistrate ordered that the hair was, her hair was to be cut. And she'd already said to him, you shall not have my hair off for all that. Being told that he was, she was going to have a haircut, she said, that will not hurt me either. <laughs> I don't care if you cut it off 50 times. So God knows she endured it all. She had her own victory. Tell us about that haircutting. You write about that, how that was really used as a tool to humiliate and control women. Yes, sadly, it was endorsed by Elizabeth Fry, who, being a woman herself, even one who wore a close Quaker's cap, would have known just how soul-searing it was to have all your hair cut off. Uh, she described it as a painless but effective punishment. So with her endorsement, um, hair cutting became very prominent. It started in Britain. Uh, I don't know to what extent she was involved in the first instance because she used to uh, visit English jails. Um, but then, of course, it became a standard punishment in the colonies from the 1820s on and increasingly during the 1830s. Uh, women hated it more than anything else. It provoked individual rebellion and screaming and yelling and flinging themselves on the floor. Uh, and it, it provoked collective riots as well. There was a notorious riot in uh, the female factory at Parramatta where the women defied the authorities by throwing stones at them as they tried to come in and cut hair. Um, but And uh, Samuel Marsden, very incensed, uh, said they must be kept under. You know, the power the haircutting gave them was, as he saw it, a necessary weapon. But then, thankfully, in 1838, before he came out to take up the office here, Governor George Gibbs had a meeting with Elizabeth Fry, who in the meantime had developed doubts about the efficacy and certainly uh, the wisdom of haircutting. Could you just explain who Elizabeth Fry was? Yes, Elizabeth Fry came from a rich Quaker family, the Gurney family, that was her maiden name. Um, she was married and had a number of children and her husband and his friends were involved in the early prison reform movement. Uh, Elizabeth herself, no doubt with much trepidation, they may always made much of ladies going into female prisons in Britain, started to visit jails in about 1813. And by 1817, she was seriously engaged in prison visiting, trying to see what she could do to improve the lot of women. Mm -hmm. And to be fair to her, that extended to clothing and trying to um, find them some useful work to do. Uh, so she became quite an influential voice, didn't she? Oh, yes. She formed the Ladies' Prison Reform uh, Society. She established ladies' committees for prison visiting all around Britain. Uh, 
She had, because of the status and wealth of her family, very high-level contacts with government. Mm. So Samuel Marsden wrote from Britain, from Australia, to Elizabeth Fry saying, we really need a new institution to house the female convicts. Then Elizabeth Fry could take that to the Secretary of State for the colonies and say something has to be done in New South Wales. Is that what led to the um, construction of the female mm-hmm. factory in 1821? Yes. Let's talk a little bit about that, the female factory, and we, we hear references to that um, in the press at the moment. There's talk about uh, work being done on that site, and I know there's resistance to that. So the female factory was there. It operated from 1821 to 1848, and it fulfilled a number of purposes. It wasn't just... As the name suggested, I had initially assumed it was a prison for women, but um, that was only one of its roles, wasn't it? Tell us about the other roles that it fulfilled. Yes, and this was very much Elizabeth Fry's influence, that uh, it should be a place where women could be returned by employers, where they would then be waiting until they were reassigned. Um, It was a place where women who were pregnant went, and nursing mothers stayed for a while. Uh, and it was also, there was a third class, which was the prison class. And if women committed offences like, for instance, Anne Wilson, uh, they would be sent to the third class of the factory where uh, it was said to uh, uh, be a place where they would be put to hard labour but there was never enough hard labour to put the number of women to. So it was it was a mixture. Uh, I think some women went there to have a rest from employment. Um, in Paramat- in uh, Van Diemen's Land, there was a whole network of female factories, the first and largest being Cascades, which is in Hobart, but there were others in Georgetown, in Launceston, in the Midlands town of Ross. In New South Wales, the key factory was at Parramatta, uh, but there were also factories at Bathurst, at Newcastle, at Port Macquarie and at Moreton Bay, as Brisbane was once called. But you write in the book about um, how from time to time riots broke out in the female factory, mm-hmm. uh, at the one at Parramatta, I'm sure the others as well. You write in particular about a breakout, um, more than a riot, a breakout in 1830 where 50 women actually escaped and they, will you tell us, where did where did they head to and, and what happened? How were they received? It was very interesting insight I got from writing this book because, of course, inevitably I was looking at and comparing New South Wales and Tasmania mm. and the reception in the community for convict women was different. The women who broke out at the Parramatta factory and thought they'd have a bit of fun went down to the race course, ran around the track, track bowing and waving, rapturously received and applauded. They did it at least twice that we know of. I think and that's one of my favourite anecdotes in the book, I have to say. Yes, it's wonderful, isn't it? And the second time, one of them persuaded a jockey to take her up. And she rode triumphantly round the course. Now, you don't get that kind of humorous pleasure and celebration of the women that you got in New South Wales. You don't get that in Van Diemen's No, you said that the, that the punishments were much more severe and the whole regulation was a lot more um, severe as well. One of the things that you do write about in relation to that Cascades, the female factory in Van Diemen's Land, is you write about a major food riot that occurred there in 1839 when 200 women, and you use the expression which you found in a document, I gather, held them absolutely at defiance. And you write about how the women there used noise as a weapon. Could you tell us about that? Yes, the, the women in Tasmania were most effective within the factory walls. We didn't have the breakouts that we had in New South Wales. Um, The food riot in 1839 was over barley, which was being substituted for wheat, I think, from memory. 
Um, and the women were just enraged and somehow managed to take control of the whole building uh, and I guess must have locked up some of the officials within the factory. And uh, the superintendent of convicts had to come rushing out from town uh, because the factory was a little way out of town, bring police with him. But the women were so positioned that they couldn't get in easily. And the women held the factory for virtually the whole day. It was a memorable riot. Every time they rioted, they, they made a huge noise. And the Bali riot was one example. The other was the day that the women were not allowed to go out in their day yards because the men were within the factory repairing the wash tubs. So they were held inside in their day rooms um, all day and they got very angry. So there was something like 150 of them yelling, stamping their feet, clapping their hands, singing rude songs. Uh, finally, the matron came in and foolishly asked for the names of the ringleaders, which made them all shout back, you know, we're all the same, we're all the same. Then a husband comes in. He was in Tasmania. He was the senior official. He tried to uh, uh, cancel their gruel, which they were due to have for their tea, <coughs> which was another foolish decision uh, because they, having hurrahed him as he came through the door, they then absolutely became more and more incensed. And as the police constables finally rushed up the stairs, you know, they could hear, hear them. They, I think the constable said they were making a terrible clatter with their tongues. Babette, I'm really interested in what you learnt researching this book that you didn't already know. You've been researching female convicts now for over 30 years. Um, what did you learn that was new as you were doing the research for this book? I learned um, or confirmed, I guess, uh, what had only been sort of mentioned as a framework that the time and place a convict woman arrived did affect her experience. And I teased out to extent I hadn't known before the extent of those differences. Between but, Van Diemen's Land and um, New South Wales particularly. Yes, particularly. Uh, but also the difference between time when Sydney Cove was the camp, when Macquarie arrived, when those free settlers with their wives and families and their capital arrived from 1820, that was also occurring down in Van Diemen's Land. Then Van Diemen's Land had what was known as the probation period uh, imposed on it, which uh, resulted in greater severity and monitoring of the women's lives. So I learned that kind of chronological difference I also, as the race course story we just discussed, uh, reveal, uh, noticed the difference in the way the community reacted to the women. I found a much greater level of resistance, far more than I had previously understood in the workplace by individual women. Mm. Um, I had found it in cargo of women, just in one or two women who were defying their employers. Um, but what I actually found there was a small sample of a much greater picture. The women were determined to make their employers uh, agree to a work, workplace rule, shall we say, that the women thought appropriate. And mm. um, this was a source of conflict between employer and servant on a on a large scale. Um, it was a, in the workplace the women's uh, numbers scarcity mm. gave them power. Yes, that's a point that that comes through very strongly that they were able to insist on certain things 
because they they had the numbers. That there were so few women available. All these young mothers who were trying to run colonial households, which involved everything from making butter, making candles, washing heavy clothes and bedding, um, let alone cooking meals. They needed those women desperately. Babette, my final question was about the title of the book, Defiant Voices. The subtitle is How Australia's Female Convicts Challenged Authority. But tell us about the title Defiant Voices. It's a great title. I'm interested in why you chose that. I probably should have uh, mentioned it in the previous answer as well. Um, One of the insights of, as it were, pulling back from the micro histories we've all been researching for the last 30-odd years and thinking, I'll do the broader picture. I'll I'll write from 1788 to the 1850s. was discovering just how loud those voices are. If you're doing micro voice uh, histories of individuals, you don't pick it so readily. But if you start looking more collectively, then you start to hear the sounds and the voices. And that was a major discovery for me. Babette, thank you so much for talking to me today on Books, Books, Books. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. And I wish you the very best of luck with the promotion of your fantastic book, which I highly recommend to anyone with an interest in any aspect of Australian history at all. Thanks, Nicole. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabberdy.com.au, to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. Thank you.